0: We'll be looking at Matthew, chapter 25, as we continue our series through Matthew. We'll be looking at the last section of Matthew. It's a section that, um, for various reasons... Uh, we find ourselves um, uneasy with. Just by way of reminder, Matthew has structured his account uh, using five discourses, five speeches, five sermons uh, that that give structure, give direction to Matthew's account of the good news of Jesus. The first of those is the best known of those. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount, which begins famously with what we call the Beatitudes or the Blessings. This is the last of the five discourses, and it's a little bit less well-known. as popularly known as the Last Days Discourse. It begins with chapter 24, and it begins with a somewhat famous seven woes or the pronouncement of the seven curses, Against the Pharisees, who were in that age, the embodiment of the spirit of every age. Matthew's message to us has been that the promised king has arrived. The king in whom alone is to be found the blessed life of the loving God's Shalom making righteousness. The promised king has arrived, in whom alone is to be found the blessed life of the loving God's peace making righteousness. In the last several sections of this last day's discourse, we have been exhorted to wake up and to wait. And to watch, be prepared for, and to be about the master's business as we await his appearance. In the last two sections, we have been warned to be prepared and to be about his business. We've learned that each of us is responsible to be prepared each of us is to be responsible for faithfully stewarding the master's resources to grow the master's estate as one commentator summarized it when christ returns we have been learning he will not ask if we knew the right date. By extension, we can say when the Christ returns, He will not ask us if we've done our reading. He will not ask us if we uh, knew the right answers. He will not ask us if we can argue theology with the best of them. The commentator continues, When Christ returns, He will ask... What have you been doing? So, of course, that presses upon us the question, well, what should we be doing? What ought we be doing? This language of should and ought grates against us because it pricks conscience. What work... Should we be about as we wait for the appearance of our king? What work ought we to be doing as we watch for and prepare for and work for his appearance? What kind of work is involved in that waiting and that watching and that preparing? What sort of work, what sort of life receives the commendation of the king? or to use the language that Matthew has been using throughout his book, what does the blessed life of Christ's righteousness look like in the genuine, authentic citizens of his kingdom? As I suggested, these are questions that for various reasons are very uncomfortable for us to entertain, and yet they are necessary for us to entertain. They are urgent for us to entertain. For like the five foolish virgins, we want to be prepared for the appearance of our king. So read with me because In this next section, Matthew addresses that very question. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Read with me. This is the conclusion of this fifth discourse. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne And before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Excuse me, from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. Saying Lord. When did we see you hungry. And feed you. Or thirsty and give you drink. And when did we see you a stranger. And welcome you or naked and clothe you. When did we see you sick. Or in prison and visit you. And the king will answer. And truly I say to you. As you did it. To one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty. And you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will say to them, saying, then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Brothers and sisters, this is good news to us, his people. Let's go to him in prayer. Our hearts, O God, are wooed and our minds, O God, are distracted by the whispers and the delights of the culture around us. It twists us. It misguides us. It blinds us. It binds us. So that we are increasingly aware, especially when we come to passages like this, That seems so strange to us. For your spirit, O Father, to help us. And so as your children, we come in Jesus' name and we ask that indeed you would grant us ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts to rejoice, lives changed. Feed us, feast us upon your truth, protect us from error. For we are your children in Jesus. Amen. Um, As you can probably tell, I'm somewhat exercised about uh, this being the passage in front of us. I wish I could say that it's a really complex passage. It's really difficult, but it's actually pretty straightforward. And so, what makes it complicated is not the complexity of the ideas, but the transformation of life that it calls for. It's describing the life of righteousness. We see it four times in our passage. Hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, and imprisoned. And it's not just that, but it's, it's the life of righteousness is our response to these things. So I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. The list is repeated four times in our short little passage. Because that's the nut and bolts of the life of righteousness. It's not a comprehensive list. It's not an exhaustive list. It is a representative list. It's sort of like Matthew in his idiom is is creating for us a dot to dot by which we can see the outlines of the life of righteousness. That is to say, the life for which we were created. The life for which we are redeemed. The life of God's love. The loving life of the triune God himself. Four times we find it. This is the basic pattern. These are the basic habits that distinguish and characterize the life of righteousness this is not new this is not a new theme throughout scripture we encounter it as we encounter it even in the wilderness we encounter it in exodus chapter 19 and exodus chapter 20 and if you you recognize the references you recognize that that is The people gathering at the foot of Mount Sinai and hearing the Ten Commandments. We encounter it in Leviticus 18 and 19. You, therefore, should be holy because I am holy. We encounter it in Job, whose life of righteousness is described as loving the poor. We encounter it in Isaiah 58, when Isaiah says, what is the fast that the Lord requires? But to care for the orphan and the widow the fatherless. We find it again in Micah, we find it again in Amos, we find it again in Ezekiel chapter 18. We find it throughout Proverbs, we find it again in the Jerusalem Council's exhortation to remember the poor in Acts chapter 15. We find it in James. When he describes pure and undefiled religion. This is not a minor theme in Scripture. This is not distinctive to Matthew. This is who our God is. As Lig Duncan said in another context, this is just the daggum gospel. To love your neighbor. Then the righteous will answer him and say, when did we see this happen? And notice what the Lord says at the very end. Truly, I, as I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of me, you did these. Uh, you, one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Excuse me. But the righteous will come into eternal life. You need to understand that this is the inheritance of righteousness. Do these things and we enter into eternal life. We enter into the fullness of a blessing. And you don't do these things as we see in 46 in the summary passage. We don't do these things and we enter into eternal punishment. We enter into the fullness of the curse. This seems straightforward enough, but I want us to be careful here. We need to remember Matthew chapter 7. Do you remember what happened in Matthew chapter 7? Allow me to read it to you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We need to be careful because it is really easy for us to read those two passages and to think that if we just do the right thing, He will be pleased with us. It's easy for us to think that the good news is just do your best. But that's not the good news. Not everyone who merely says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Not even one who do, ones who do mighty works in the name of the Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. After all, remember Simon the magician in Acts. He saw Peter casting out demons by the power of the spirit. And he wanted the spirit because it would be Really good for his business. Where can I get this thing? How much does it cost? I want some of that, too. It'd be a boon for business. Simon, the magician like Simon, the magician. Many of us see Jesus. We see the gospel as merely a way to secure glory for ourselves in this world. And the next for that matter. But look more carefully. Listen again to Matthew chapter 7. Listen to that list. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Wouldn't it be great to be able to cast out demons in the name of Jesus? Man, would people steer clear of you? Careful! I'm gonna cast out that wicked demon. Or what about what about prophesying? Whew. Telling the future there's good money in that. Doing many mighty things. You see, they had assumed. In Miss Matthew chapter seven passage, that they that the life of righteousness involved doing spectacular and extraordinary things, mighty works they called them, things that our world esteems as wonderful and glorious. But the list here seems to the list here seems to indicate that the mighty works of God's righteousness are much less ostentatious, much less visible, much less desirable, much less spectacular, in fact, boringly mundane, even risky, even dirty. The list given here, feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, welcoming the stranger, Clothing the naked, visiting the sick, visiting those in prison. The list given here is not a list of habits that we generally aspire to. How many of you have asked a child, What do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, Oh, I want to be a feeder of the hungry. I want to be a visitor of the imprisoned. I want to be a welcomer of strangers. Oh. It's good money in that. In fact, I find myself naturally turning my eyes away from such, naturally resisting the call to such, naturally pushing them aside and esteeming them not, and even despising them. These habits are not beautiful and they're not glorious. How many of us really have dreamt of growing up to be a Mother Teresa? The second thing to notice, not only are they mundane, not only are they different from the the, um, glorious acts that people often associate with the life of righteousness, but notice this, verse 37 The righteous will scratch their heads and they'll say, what are you talking about? This is the first time we've seen you. When did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you naked? When did we see you as a stranger? When did we see you in prison? Remember doing all that. Because you see, the life of righteousness becomes like second nature. So in our passage, those who do these things are not self-consciously aware that they are doing them. They just do them. That's who they are. That's just what they do. I even think about it. It's just second nature. Clearly, there is something deeper going on than having a checklist by their bedside table and checking it at the beginning and end of each day. Hungry? Check. Thirsty? Check. Stranger? Check. Naked? Check. Boy, was that a story. Homeless? Check. Imprisoned? Mm. Not yet. No, there's something a lot deeper, going on, such that they appear to be acting instinctively as though it has become second nature to them, something happening in them at a pre-conscious, pre-thought level, at the level of character, at the level of heart habits, at the level of their passions, In their minds, they're thinking to themselves, this is just who I am. This is just what I do. Doesn't everybody act this way? It's just who they are. That's the inheritance of the life of righteousness. What is at the crux of it? What is at the heart of it? We've seen many of these habits before as we have walked with Matthew through his account of Jesus' life and ministry. As Matthew has been telling the story, we have watched Jesus act in these ways. We've seen him feeding the hungry. We've seen him visiting the sick. We've seen him welcoming and embracing and including table fellowship with strangers and even enemies. Who does that? Matthew is not describing some abstract theoretical life of righteousness. He is sketching for us here the life of Christ. What Matthew is describing here when he says hungry and thirsty and stranger and naked and sick and in prison, he's describing the life of Christ. That's why Jesus says, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And Jesus himself is saying, I am the least of the least. That's who I am. Even though you may know me as the God of righteousness. Because this is the glory of the righteousness For which we all hunger and thirst. The life of Christ reveals with clarity and glory the life of righteousness for which we all hunger and thirst, a hunger and thirst which is only fully and overflowingly satisfied in Jesus. And so some of you might be remembering oh, he's reaching all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be super satisfied. You see, this is how God's, the glory of God's righteousness is his great love, by which he comes into the mess of the world to save sinners, of which I am the chief. To come to the most vulnerable, to come to the most despised, the most rejected, the most sick, the least, the lost and the lonely, the wandering and the wandering to his neighbors, strangers, and even to his sworn enemies. This is the righteousness of God. This is the beating heart of God's righteousness. This is the crux of God's righteousness. It's the crux of the matter before us. And this is why Paul in his letter to the Philippians says, have this mind among you, which is already yours in Christ Jesus, because this is the righteousness of God. And why he says in Ephesians chapter five, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord and husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her, because this is what love looks like. So this raises a pretty significant conflict for those of us in this room and in this particular tradition that we represent Because we find ourselves saying, well, wait a minute. Now, what is it? Is it grace or is it law? Is it free or do I have to work hard for it? Which is it? By grace or by works? But hear me carefully. The traditional apparent conflict which takes up an enormous amount of space in the commentaries, I will tell you. Between Matthew's vision and Paul's vision, a conflict according to which there seem to be two opposing views of the Christian life, one characterized by works and one characterized by grace, is not really a conflict. Is a huge issue in our circles. This conflict arises in our circles because of a limited and twisted and misplaced and disproportionate understanding of grace. Of giving Paul's letters exclusive access to our hearts and minds and losing sight of the larger context of God's character as revealed throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Including the prophet's. And some of the apostles themselves. If, as many believe, whether consciously or just functionally, that grace is a gift so that we are now free to do whatever is right in our own eyes, then yes, there is a fundamental irreconcilable conflict between what Paul is saying and Matthew is saying. But that is not what grace is. If as fewer of us are able to imagine, grace is about a particular kind of life freely and fully granted to us by the abundance of God's love in Jesus Christ. Then we should expect that the life of grace that captivates us and makes us a slave of righteousness would actually cultivate in us and shape in us the blessed life of that righteousness. Or what Peter calls the life of holiness, harking all the way back to Leviticus 18 and 19. In fact, that life of righteousness, that life of holiness would in fact be identical in different ways of naming the same thing, the life of grace. Grace. And that is, in fact, what we have here. So how do we account for the apparent differences between Paul and Matthew? Well, in short, Paul is focusing on the source of such a life, the spring in which such a life is rooted. And Matthew's focus here is on the fruit of such a life, the evidence of such a life, the evidentiary works of righteousness what such a life looks like when it takes on flesh and dwells among us. So does Matthew give any indication whatsoever of the source of the life of righteousness? He does. Look at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come You who are blessed, right? He makes it explicit actually. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. A more precise translation of that word would be come, you who have been blessed by my Father. And then he goes on to say, you prove the fact that you have been blessed by my father by feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked, visiting the home, uh, welcoming the stranger, housing the homeless, visiting the sick and imprisoned. You see the same similar construction. In verse 41. 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed. So we don't say it like this, but you might say blessed and cursed in order to emphasize the passivity of this. That is something that has happened, and our lives bear the fruit of it. Oh, I see. We're all generally good people. We're all morally neutral. And God blesses some and God curses others. I get it. But that's not what's happening here. The fact is, as Paul will tell us, in Adam, all of us inherit the curse. It's a wonder that there are any sheep at all except for the love of our Father by which some are called and rescued. You see, the source of righteousness is the passion of the Christ. The habits of righteousness listed here are not the basis of the Father's blessing. They are the result of the Father's blessing, a blessing freely and fully granted and secured in Jesus Christ. And that is why Matthew says, Blessed are those who, are hung, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be fully satisfied. And later, just a couple of verses later, they will be full to overflowing in Jesus, who perfectly and completely fulfills all righteousness in such a way that our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. The end of the matter is this, or the beginning of the matter, or, shall I say, the beginning and the end of the matter, is that when our passions are transfixed and transformed by the passion of Jesus Christ, the inevitable and unavoidable result is the life of righteousness. Righteousness. A life of increasing compassion and tenderness for the least, for the lost, and the lonely. Eyes to see and welcome neighbor and stranger and even enemy. Brothers and sisters, there is a well known question. that leads us to believe that if we know the right answer, we will be welcomed into heaven. But brothers and sisters, hear me, and I recognize the risk in me saying this. It is not mere profession or intellectual assent. But lives that demonstrate that they are captivated by and captive to the passion of Jesus. Lives that are transfixed and transformed by the passion of God's great love for us in Jesus. As James will tell us, the demons know the right answer. They just don't walk in conformity to the passion. So what constitutes this righteousness that is pleasing to the Father It is hearts that are so transformed by the passion of Jesus that it has become second nature to us to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to welcome the stranger, to house the homeless, to honor our neighbor and our neighbor's family, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, in short, The righteousness that is pleasing to the Father is the shalom-making righteousness with which we are clothed in Jesus Christ. You have to understand, well, I'm going to be on the lookout for hungry and naked, but understand, the fact is you are surrounded by the hungry and the naked and the homeless. You are surrounded by the vulnerable. Every day, every relationship, every responsibility is filled with 10,000 moments to recognize and respond to the appearance of Christ before our very eyes in one another. My instinct, and perhaps your instinct, is to be quick to criticize and to judge Why are you hungry? Why are you thirsty? Get your own water. Well, if you hadn't done that, you'd have a house. Every day, every relationship, every responsibility is filled with 10,000 moments to recognize and respond to the appearance of Christ before our very eyes. We should be careful, though, not to spiritualize and generalize. Because the fact is that we should be on the lookout for the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the homeless, the stranger, and the imprisoned. Because after all, the righteousness of God and Jesus Christ shows that the love of God comes to seek and to save the sinners. Seek them out. Look for them. Prepare for them. Be ready for them. Because this is the life of righteousness that pleases the Father. It is the life of righteousness which in Jesus Christ is freely and fully yours. And freely and fully mine. It is the life of the Father's abounding love to the least of these Christ's brothers so that we may know him, we may rejoice in him, we may exalt him, we may celebrate him. So let's go to him and pray.